Hello, everybody. Think you can hear me? Yes, the indications are that you can. I don't know if this thing raises at all. Uh, looks pretty good, though, one way or the other. Hi, my name is Luke Thomas. This is the weekly live chat that I do on MMA fighting. I hope you're doing well. Today is Wednesday, August the 13th. I didn't, I didn't even have to look at my phone to do that. Uh, 2014, not July of 2004. Um, today on the chat, we'll talk about, geez, it's been a crazy week since the last time we did this, right? I mean, you had the tape leak between John Jones and Daniel Cormier, what that was and what it all means. You have now Jones's injury and the postponement of that fight. You've got Gustafson all bitter, in some ways rightly so. You've got Metamorphs 4, which was kind of incredible. You've got uh, World Series of Fighting 12, which was also kind of incredible in a, in a very different way. Um, and, of course, you have this whole unbelievably... God, what is the word? Um, this thing going on with... With War Machine, it's um, uh, prurient. I don't know. I don't know what the word would be, but whatever the case, War Machine being chased. You understand how hard it is to go to your like father and be like, "Yo, Dad." So uh, today on the site, <laughs> we covered this guy whose legal name is War Machine. Yeah, he beat up his ex uh, uh, pornography star girlfriend uh, in a terrible assault, is now on the run from a reality star named Dog the Bounty Hunter. Other reality stars are in on it, and the best part is, there's a portion of the fan base that thinks it's her fault. Proud yet? <coughs> so we'll get to some of that. But whatever the case, we'll get to your questions and comments and all that good stuff. Uh, best place to put your comments, as you all know, is on MMAfighting.com. I will try to get to some on Twitter, which you may also follow me at SBN. Luke Thomas, please let me know if there's any issues with the microphone. I have ACs running, so I'll try to speak up a little bit if that's what's necessary. I don't quite know. Uh, let me close Facebook out here because that will make noises. Um, here you go. So just let me know. Let me know what works and what doesn't, and we'll make everything uh, happy for you. couple of announcements, including a very big one. So as I mentioned last week, we are now on SoundCloud. You can get the link right from my Twitter profile. Uh, and it's or it's soundcloud.com slash all one word, the Luke Thomas. I know it sounds pompous, but I just need to come up with something that worked, okay? Um, you can go there. I was approved last night for the SoundCloud uh, podcasting program, and that may sound insignificant to you, but here's the upshot of that. I now have an RSS feed, which is linked inside the post right now on uh, where you're watching this video, on MMAfighting.com. Or you can go to the SoundCloud side. The RSS feed is right there. That RSS feed is what I need to now get on iTunes. So the good news is um, there is a strong possibility. I don't want to guarantee anything because you just never know. I would be highly surprised if by this time next week we're not on iTunes. I'd be highly surprised. I have everything I need now to get that done, to make that work. So... I appreciate everyone's patience. I have an RSS feed. You can follow me on SoundCloud. You can go ahead and get that going. You can download the mobile app. It works. I checked it out of my car, hooked it up through Bluetooth. I got to listen to it on the way home, which sounds kind of weird, but I'm just trying to give you, you know, options for you. But we will soon, soon, soon be on iTunes. I appreciate everyone's support. Uh, what you have to do is, by the way, check in after the chat is over, and I will post the SoundCloud embed where you can play, stream, download, share, the whole business. Okay? And then, of course, one last order of business before we get going. My wife got me this, as you can see. 
Uh, still no names decided for the chat yet. I know it's sort of leaning in one direction. We probably will end up going in that direction, but I haven't made any official decisions. But I just want to show everyone this cool mug that uh, my wife got me, and now I'm going to... <laughs> Last, but not least, procedurally. You know that sound. When you hear that sound, that means share this video, share this post in whatever social media channel you have. Let me pour this soda, this horrible soda for my health, and we'll get going. All right, first question. I know it's been a long intro, but I had, we got, you know, listen, it's a show in transition. We got stuff to do, you know. All right. Uh, by the way, answer the poll question, too. All right. First question. Uh, Rousey pay-per-view draw. Is Rousey really a pay-per-view draw? You stated that under your criteria in determining who is an actual pay-per-view draw, they can get over the 400K mark. Are people actually willing to shell out money to buy a Rousey fight? Let's look at the stats. UFC 175, she was co-headliner, got 500 to 545. As you noted, you might have purchased that to see Weidman and or uh, The Greatest of All Time twice. UFC 170 did only 340K buys. UFC 168, 1 million buy rate, but clearly most of it was probably because of the result of the main event. Well, not the result of the main event. They, you purchase pay-per-views in advance, not after the fact. They do marginal sales after the fact. And, of course, the first women's fight is U in UFC 157 did 450K buys. So, Rousey's a star, but is she really a pay-per-view draw? I, 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 someone notes that I... I, I talked about this last week, so I'll briefly just sort of say, jury is still out. There's some evidence to suggest she's not. There's a lot of ways it's hard to determine. As you notice, she had piggybacked two of the bigger cards of the year. It's not clear what sort of contributory factors that may have had. She may be a star, but she may not be one without a rival, uh, which is to say, um, as long as she's competing against people who they don't know who, she, who they are, she won't be, but maybe fights against people of, of name or value or intrigue would significantly alter that landscape. So she may not be a paper... I mean, there's ways to sort of define pay-per-view star, if we're talking about numerical value, it's not just reaching above 400, it's consistently being above 400. 400, 450, 500. To me, if you're consistently above that. Moreover, if you're not doing it, the only really way you can measure that is in a headlining role, unless the main event is so weak. But in places where she's been the co-main event, the headliner's been as strong, if not stronger. So there's there's just not a lot of evidence to make a strong conclusion one way or the other. There's no doubt she's a major star. Um, she's now showing up on celebrity gossip blogs and stuff, you know? Like, I don't know of any other MMA fighter alive that, that that's happening to. Maybe Randy Couture a little bit. Um, but she's showing up there now. So so she's certainly a star. Pay-per-view draw, jury's still out. Someone says, calling 340K buys low when it was higher than almost anything else is just as ignorant. No, it's not. 340k buys is not bad. 340k buys a few years ago was the um, was the floor on what pay-per-views used to do, and it's certainly a profitable way to make money. But relative to what they used to do, relative to what they can do, relative to what other stars pull in, 340k is low. It is certainly at the lower end of what is expected of a pay-per-view headliner, you know. And I just think what Demetrius Johnson pulls in is just like you know, uh, just borderline unacceptable, if not outright unacceptable. 
what did it happen with Fighting Lifestyle UAE? Plagiarizing one of our articles. Uh, handed it over to, to our lawyers, and they'll take care of it from there. BJ Penn bashes Mike Dolce. Look, I read an article on MMAfighting.com that BJ Penn said, quote, as far as Mike Dolce goes, I would never hire him again for anything. And is this a case of BJ just having sour grapes over his performance, or did he think Dolce was more bro science and actual nutritionist? I've read over some of Mike Dolce's books, and while it didn't offer anything new, it seemed like a pretty solid program. More of a paleo-based diet emphasized on carbs and less protein than bodybuilder-style diets. That's been sort of my read on um, Dolce's work as well. I think that proof's in the pudding. I think as a fighter and a guy who cut weight, he, he, first of all, he's the first to admit he doesn't have a formal background in, in nutrition science. Uh, everything he knows is from personal use and experimentation. I think there's something to be said for that, you know. There's, he's going to have some secrets about how the athlete's bodies work, how the human body works, what a fighter's needs might be in ways that maybe a nutritionist simply would not know, at least not without further um, experimentation or uh, exposure to that to the line of work. I mean, Mike Dolce knows what your body needs to look like six weeks out, five weeks out, four weeks out, three weeks out, two weeks out, what you'll need on fight night, what it's like to cut weight, what it's like to rehydrate. He knows the life cycle of a fight really well, and I think that that enables him to give proper dietary advice, even if that doesn't mean, he, again, he doesn't come from a proper nutrition background or a formal one anyway, but he has accrued a base of knowledge that is very sport-specific, that is hard to replicate. So even if it doesn't help you in your line of work or help a, a speed skater or someone an American Ninja Warrior or uh, an Olympic lifting athlete, I don't think he's trying to be an all-encompassing nutritionist. I think he's trying to be a guy who caters to athletes uh, of combat and particularly mixed martial arts. Um, and he's done quite well with that. I mean, I, there's not a lot of guys who hire him and don't make weight um, or guys who hire him and don't make weight then look like death on fight night. Uh, what the nature is of the dispute between BJ and Mike Dolce, I have no, I have no clue. Nor do I really care, to be honest. Um, guys are going to have disagreements. There's going to be issues between them. But I would defend Mike Dolce. Again, I don't think that anything he's doing is revolutionary. He's not on the cutting edge of molecular biology. But at the same time, I think that the knowledge base that he has relative to the clients he's um, advising, I think there's a, he has a lot to offer. And by the way, whatever you think, he, how much, how little he knows, um, his clients know a thousand times less. You know, so I don't know. I haven't seen a lot to complain about Mike Dolce. Again, I don't think it's revolutionary, but I do think it's very, very effective, and I think it's very sports specific. And you know, whether it's a value to you as a fighter to pay the cost for that, I don't know. But um, I, I'm not on the bandwagon that well. It's you know, he lacks a formal degree in nutrition science, and therefore. Everything he says should be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, that's supposedly that's true, but look at his results. They seem to be pretty good. Uh, Carano's decision. If the money at Bellator is comparable to what the UFC is offering her, isn't this a no-brainer that she fights for Scott Coker? They'll give her matchups that suit her, and she'll get to fight at 145. Unless I'm deeply undervaluing the deal Gina may get from the UFC, the only thing I see them offering her that's markedly better than a deal with Bellator is more time in the spotlight. I'm sort of with you. Um, how they monetize that deal is going to be kind of interesting, right? So uh, if you sign Gina Carano, and more than just that, you're signing her basically away from the UFC at this point. I mean, I don't really know that she has a ton of interest in UFC, as we talked about in the MMA beat last week. It may just be that she's been fooling us all. But nevertheless, 
UFC is interested in her, so they're going to give her a contract, and that contract is going to have a certain market value. Whether or not Gina is actually interested in UFC is sort of immaterial. What you're, what you're, if you're Bellator, what you're going up against is that contractual value and all the things that it brings you, and then ultimately the sort of ancillary benefits that it confers. Stardom, UFC pay-per-view, she's on pay-per-view points, for example, um, certain, a certain measure of media visibility that she may not otherwise get, although I recognize that she's a pretty big star and can generate media. But I saw some of the comments that were made that, like, there's no way that Dana would let this happen. I, I think people are fooling themselves a little bit. As you noted, first of all, she wouldn't have to fight at 135. I mean, do folks not remember how much she struggled to get to 145, much less 135. Um, you take away that hurdle immediately. Moreover, she can't beat anyone at 135. <laughs> I don't think, even if she can make it, I just have a hard time believing five years away when her, her already limited skill set that this is going to, this is not, I mean, the women, of, the women of today certainly have a long way to go in a developmental process to, to raise the level of their game to what the men's is, even in the deeper weight classes like 135. Um, and that's not very deep. 115 obviously looks a lot better, but you get the idea, like, even the women today would clown the women of five years ago, you know. I mean, to, I think Tanya Evinger tried out for the show and couldn't even get on it. Um, and, you know, that was one of the, her, that was, she was at one time seen as a threat to Corona because of her wrestling. So, so I think that, you know, well, they could give her cans, you know, I suppose. They could still sign Cyborg away since Dana seems to have this apprehension. Bellator can sign Cyborg with simply much less scrutiny about them. And you can say that that's unfair, and you know what? You'd be right. You would be right that it is more, it is, a, it is an inherent unfairness that Bellator can sign Cyborg and be subject to much less scrutiny than the UFC would be. But this is, this is the king's curse. The king's curse is that they certainly are the king in, U, in the UFC's case, that they have this kind of visibility and this power and this market reach and this market share and all of the other advantages that come with being the king, but that also means because of that visibility, it, it carries many, many greater costs. It is less detrimental to MMA if, God forbid, a fighter dies in Bellator versus UFC. It's just a fact. Now, there could be some extenuating circumstances that change that equation a little bit, but certainly the worst-case scenario for MMA would be Fighter dying in Bellator, fighter dying in UFC or UFC pay-per-view, UFC pay-per-view main event, right? It's just it carries so much more significance, and for that reason alone, also, you know, I don't know what the store, what's in store for the future of um, UFC, but I don't think that Bellator is going to be doing. They'll be doing what the standard commission testing is. They won't be doing commission testing along the lines of uh, what you see in Nevada and their enhanced program today. And again, is that unfair? Sure. Is that borderline unscrupulous, you can make that case. But that's the reality that they live in. They'll, they'll do what the commission standard is. That'll be deemed acceptable. And Cyborg can, can, can operate those issues. I'm not saying she, she will, you know, invariably go to Bellator if Gina does. Chances make that are much more likely. Interestingly, though, Cyborg becomes a bit of an interesting property if, if Bellator signs Gina. Because then UFC would want to keep the best fight that Bellator could make away from her. Um... And, of course, the, one of the bigger fights they could make between her and Rousey. So that changes Cyborg a little bit as well. Um, anyway, but, you know, you see these contracts that Rampage got, and those didn't come to fruition, these sort of Viacom contracts. But you could see Gina getting that. You could see her getting some kind of television developmental deal. You could see her working with movie studios. Um, if you looked at Viacom's recent earnings, their TV side is doing really well. It took a bit of a hit relative to what they did last year in the movie space. 
maybe they want to sign Gina because she's a recognizable name. They can promote her on the TV side, then bring her back over to the movie side and, and have some kind of, for lack of a better description, corporate synergy. There's a lot of reasons why the Bellator contracts make sense. You know, Now you're starting to see why Viacom owning Bellator is, is a little bit different. Under the revenue era, it was just never leveraged in a in a way that uh, you really got to see it with its full breadth and power. And, and now you can a little bit. Um, uh, again, maybe she goes to UFC. I don't know. But assuming she does go to Bellator, it's not crazy that they can pay her. Now, whether they make their money back is a totally different story. But you can see why Gina would find that opportunity a lot more enticing. Fighting on Spike TV is no big deal. Fighting on, um, on pay-per-view is what she wants to do. And headlining cards, I think she can draw. Scott Coker knows she can draw, you know. Um, the return of this American Gladiator. The re- I mean, it's it's it. It would be a big, big win for Bellator. Whether they make their money back in terms of uh, dollar for dollar, we'll see. Um, our Gustafson. I want to just talk about uh, before we get to War Machine. I want to talk about Metamorphs. So I'm going to answer a couple of these questions, and then I want to talk about Metamorphs because I've had some ideas that I haven't really put down on on paper but I want to share just the same. Um, are Gustafson fans delusion? Well, you put delusion. I think you mean delusional. I read multiple posts and tweets from fans stating that Gustafson should now get a title shot, or the title shot. Am I missing something, or didn't Gustafson pull out of the fight to begin with, thus losing his spot? Well, yes, he did, because he got injured. I don't know what the timeline would be for his return. I haven't done all the math. But let's, assume, let's assume his return works, that by January 3rd he'd be ready to rock. Not just like clear to train, but have already trained, and then, and then ready to fight. Um, or even if he's not ready by January third, that they could push the fight even a little bit further back, and then they can nevertheless make the fight happen. I, I don't understand. I, I understand his position. Hey, listen, I had this fight. It was the fight of the year, arguably one of the best fights I've ever seen, certainly for a light heavyweight title. Any title. Um, Gustafson put on a performance of a lifetime, arguably won. I don't think he did. I think Jones won, but we all know that story. Here's the problem. Um, I talk about it on this chat all the time. The justice you have in this space is the justice you create. And while that fight is hot and that rematch is anticipated, it is nothing compared to what Jones and Cormier now have. Had that brawl never happened, had that ESPN tape never happened, maybe the situation would be different. But it is different now. When I sat here and I told you that the situation now had been completely transformed because of that brawl, this is what I meant. There is no way you can credibly claim as a ticket that Gustafson-Jones rematch is hotter than Jones-Cormier. It's just not possible. That doesn't mean Jones... Gustafson shouldn't happen, assuming Jones beats Cormier. That doesn't mean Jones-Gustafson rematch isn't also a super hot fight. There's no doubt about it that it is. It is not on par with what he and Cormier now have. He and Cormier have something you almost never see. Two of the best fighters in the game. The best the game has to offer, not simply just from a technical perspective, but from a brand outreach perspective, from every kind of thing you can imagine, from all the intangibles to all the resume uh, items and bullet points. It's a fighter's fight. It's a fan's fight. It's everything. And it turns out that they have a kind of discontent with one another that you simply cannot replicate. I'm sorry, folks. That's just not what you have with Gustafson. You have a many, many other things. You have a fight that will definitely do well on pay-per-view. Could be huge. I'm not debating any of this. 
But we're talking about uh, it's just not on the same level as what Cormier and Jones have now. No chance. No chance. No chance. And I know that's hard for Gustafson to see. If I was in his position, I'd be frustrated. If you're a Gustafson fan, you have a right to be frustrated. You can feel that way. But you simply have to look at the reality for what it is. It's just not on par. It turns out that when you get Jones and Cormier together, as we mentioned before, two elite fighters, elite tacticians, super high fight IQ. In Cormier, probably he's a little bit older, but probably the best athlete in the game. Two Olympic teams. In Jones, maybe the best fighter ever. But guys who, if they don't beat the other guy, their career won't be what it should have been. The most, the highest stakes imaginable. It doesn't get higher than that. And so while the stakes with, 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 with Gustafson are extremely high, and that fight's extremely good, and, and, I cannot, and I hope we see it again soon, I'm sorry, y'all, it's not on par. It's just not on par. And more to that point, I want to piggyback here. Um... And I'll talk. I'll talk about this war machine thing in a minute. But you know, for all the hemming and hawing about, and the hand wringing about, this is bad for the sport. You know, this is not a sport like basketball where you have you may have labor disputes and individual athlete malfeasance, but you don't really have basketball as such being questioned as whether or not this contributes to violence in society, right? And we all know that MMA has a very um, controversial background. But this is not a sport unaccustomed to bad press. Right? We've all seen what bad press looks like. I think a lot of times in a crisis or a bad spot, you have to, st and I've worked in crisis management and PR, you have to sort of st take a step back and say, okay, how bad are things? And that can be hard when you're inside the bubble. But there becomes a time when you know what you're looking at. Okay? Um, I didn't see any negative fallout from that brawl. Now, that doesn't mean, and I'm willing, I'll be the first to admit, maybe somewhere down the line the culinary union uses it. I don't think it's of any real significance as an argument because they've already won in New York, to be honest. But okay, fine. Uh, it certainly isn't good in that sense. Um, you know, brawls can be viewed in, you know, a brawl is a negative thing. That we got out of one without much incident is, you know, um, Uh, fortuitous, but but okay, brawls are not a good thing. But that being said, where are the print articles about it? Where are the talking heads? Where are the guys on sports radio crucifying the whole thing? Because it's not from a lack of visibility. I had a buddy of mine, he hates MMA. And one thing we watch together is we watch Arsenal games, Real Madrid games, Washington Wizards games together. Um, and this was a guy in the, in the military, you know, an uh, officer in the army. Uh, known this guy since college, loves athletics, um, has watched UFC fights with him before, like doesn't care for MMA at all. And he texted me with the dead spin link of Jones and Cormier in that leaked video going, this is hilarious, when is this fight, who will win? That never happens with him. Of, I mean, of all my friends, to ask me, he'd be the last one. The last one. And here he goes, asking about it. Like, the, the idea that, like, do you not, like, look around. Where is the negative press? It doesn't exist, or very, very small, borderline negligible. You contrast that with what's happening with War Machine and Josh Grisby, and some of that is simply just tawdry. I get that, but that's way worse, way worse for the sport, even if 
War Machine washed out of, of UFC and Josh Crispy washed out of UFC and Bellator released him from this contract. And by the way, you see Bellator taking zero heat. Again, it's the price of being the king. You know, um, It sucks for the UFC. It's not fair. It's 100% not fair. But that is the world we live in, right? So my only point is, like, look around, guys. Like, if you didn't like the brawl, okay, fine. It's you have a right not to like the brawl. And if you don't like them getting on ESPN and doing what they did, okay, you have a right not to like it. Not everyone has to like it. Not everyone has to think it's fun. Not everyone has to say it's the best thing they've ever seen since sliced bread. However, if you're going to make a claim credibly about this being damaging, visibly damaging, like I can prove to you that this is injuring the sport. Then prove it to me. Show me the articles. Show me demonstrable evidence that 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 this is damaging. That this is injuring to our cause and this sport. Because you can't do it. You can't do it. It's okay to have a personal take on it, but reading the masses, it ain't there. It simply ain't there. I just want to make that clear. And I'm and, and what's unfortunate is that this war machine situation has has underscored just how true that is. Because you now have Salon.com. I guess I'm getting brought into this war machine issue. Because you now have Salon.com talking about this. And listen, Salon.com is what it is. It's a very left-wing um, digital magazine. A lot of the stuff they write I don't agree with. They wrote an article about it. You can look it up. It's linked in the comments here. Much of what she says I, I find to be totally dismissible. Some of what she says I think is, is unbridled truth. Um, I think the U, I think not you I should say the wider MMA community has a problem uh, with the way in which we view and treat women. Not everyone, maybe not anyone watching this chat, but sort of generally as a community, relative to other pockets of the population, we have an issue. I think I don't think it's really contestable. And you see that various, uh, not simply various, all levels of the sport, although it's you know, worse in some places than other ones. I do think we are slowly limping towards progress. I do think that things are getting better. I think that including women as athletes, which the UFC has uh, not until recently done, but done in a way that no one else could, I think has been hugely beneficial. Um, but we've got a long way to go, folks. Anyway, so this whole talk about Jones Cormier being bad for the sport, if you are making a claim about injury, I would like to see some proof because you do not have it. It is not there. If, if at worst people find it, you know, oh buffoonery, but buffoonery is sort of, you know, that's not inimical to to MMA. That's that's in every sport. All right. So before I go any further with this war machine thing, I want to talk about Minamoris real quickly because I haven't seen anyone really talk about it, and it's something that's been on my mind a lot. Um, first of all, I hope you guys liked it as much as I did. I'm making sure. All right. Looks like the. Uh, Looks like the chat is running just fine. Alright. Oh, there's Bellator news? What's the Bellator news? Oh, I'll get it later. Did y'all watch Metamorphs? Did you like it? I loved it. Let me tell you what something that I've, I had thought about with Metamorphs. And if you watch the first Metamorphs, you look at the fight card. It was really a jiu-jitsu super fight card. You had Bushesha, Hadra Gracie, and you had um, and you had uh, Otavia Souza, Crone, and you know uh, uh, Rafael Lovato and Andre Galvan, and and you know it was a lot of just hardcore jiu-jitsu. But what happened in the last one I thought was interesting. Not the one on Saturday. I guess there's been four of them. So there was Metamorphs too. But starting from Metamorphs three on, um, 
I thought was, what was kind of interesting was that with Eddie Bravo's system, now listen, Wheeler Gracie is you know an older grappler, super old school style, and and I, you you really don't want to overemphasize what everything means. I think when people say, "Oh, that was a win for catch wrestling over jujitsu," it's like, how could you even make such a stupid statement like that? But what I will say is that Metamorphosis kind of reminded me of, in the last two events anyway, of like what the UFC did for. Um, fighting sports is what jiu-jitsu, or is rather what Metamorse is doing for grappling. Now, to be clear, Metamorse still is a jiu-jitsu kind of contest. I mean, you can reap the knee, which you can't do in a lot of IBJJF tournaments, but um, it still is a lot of things that are prohibited in other kinds of, of submission wrestling. It's They're still prohibited in Metamorse, so in that way, it's still kind of a jiu-jitsu thing. However, what you're finding is that Guys who have novel theories and new takes about things that we didn't think worked have found ways to make them work. And much like Anthony Pettis' Showtime kick or spinning heel kicks from Edson Barboza, they only really work when you have the other pieces of your game sort of fully flushed out. But they do expand the horizon about what we think is possible. And I really thought that would be the case with Josh Barnett and that head and arm choke that he had, the way he worked it, that's a legal choke. Now, it's a bit of a crank if someone does it. I've been put in it before. It's not a full-on crank, but it does hurt your neck in ways that, for example, a normal head and arm triangle in jiu-jitsu would work, where back down on top and then you rotate, right? Um, but what was interesting to me about that, I was like, Metamorphosis is expanding the notion of what it means to be a competent grappler with hard evidence. Because for, like, the major takeaway for me is that like, I've, I, you hardly ever see... I mean. The way in which he finished that choke was almost like a wrestling pin, a freestyle wrestling pin, uh, or even a folk style, whatever you want to use. It was almost like a wrestling pin. Now, he raised his hips up even further to, to really choke it all off, but I guess my point is like you almost never see that in jiu-jitsu. And you'll notice that, like for example, you know, in catch wrestling and in jiu-jitsu, the kimura, when they're on their hip and you snatch it up, that's a common thing in both jiu-jitsu and, and uh, a catch wrestling. But Dean was able to get out of those. Because he's seen those a million times. It was the submission that Dean probably hasn't experienced nearly as much, that style of front headlock. I'm sure he's seen it before, but not, not nearly as often, uh, or, or, or um, head and arm triangle, that got him. And so I guess my point is that, you know, listen, every style is going to have their flaws. I think jiu-jitsu looking in on itself constantly and not expanding a rule set and creating things where guys just, you know, bear and to the back and then win by bow and arrow choke. You know, I got a problem with that. A person is not my kind of style of jiu-jitsu. But, but all that being said, I think that what Metamorphosis has, has taught me was a, some of the lessons you get from the early UFCs. Like, the notion of what it means to be a competent grappler requires you to have a certain base and then to seek other things outside, which is what Josh Barnett has done. Josh Barnett is, everyone's like, oh, all, everything he got was from catch wrestling. He's a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu in the gi. Like, there was nothing I hadn't seen anyone use up until that final submission. And I'd seen it before, but again, very rarely. Very rarely. Now, he did have the shoes. He was able, that, was, that enabled him to press in and, and keep weight on Dean. Um, he did use a lot of cradles. The cradling, uh, not uncommon, uh, but not very common. Um, but that choke, man. You know, to me, oh, he got out of the, uh, the Kimuras. Yeah, he's seen a million Kimuras setups. It's going to be very hard to Kimura Dean Lister. But it's not nearly as hard, although still very difficult, 
to get a kind of choke that you really don't see often in jiu-jitsu. A kind of head and arm triangle from the front, hips up like you're doing a clock choke almost, and then and then riding it. Um, I think there's some problems with catch wrestling. I don't know much about their guard or if they really have a whole lot to say about the guard. I think it works a lot better for big men than it does for little men. I think jiu-jitsu is much more beneficial to the smaller person. So again, all the styles are going to have things they're good at and things they're bad at. But what what Josh Barnett can do is he can take. I'm sure I'm sure Josh Barnett has omoplatus from the guard. He's a second degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. I'm sure he has. His legs probably don't work that well for triangles, but he probably has good arm bars. He has good sweeps. All, all that stuff. I believe all that stuff to be true. But he also has some of these you know front chancery attacks that other people just don't have. Although Gary Tonin has some. You get the idea. And so I hope Metamorris embraces that. I hope Metamorris maybe opens up the rule set a little bit. And I don't know that we need to allow neck cranks exactly, although they do in catch wrestling tournaments. But I don't know. Wouldn't it be fun to see somebody who's like a really expert combat sambo guy get up in there and do his thing and um, and and show us ways in which to attack that we don't normally see? I think they'd be really kind of fun. Expand the notion about what it means to be a grappler. I still believe jiu-jitsu to be the best, but it has clear, clear, clear problems. And it has problems that a lot of other kind of grappling styles solve for. And when you're a guy like Josh Barnett, where being a big man really works nicely with catches, catch, can, and then you fill in some of the other gaps maybe with sambo that he's learned, or judo that he's learned, or jiu-jitsu that he's learned, you can become a bad dude, man. You can become a really bad dude. I do think weight played an issue there a little bit. Um, everyone's like, that takes away from the victory. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Uh, there's no denying that the top pressure that Barnett executed was was expertly, pinpointedly, um, precision-wise applied to the hips of Dean. But it's also and it's also true that those shoes help push him in. I mean, dude, if you have shoes, I'm gonna grind I'm gonna grind you to death. That game is the game I like to play. Side control, I like to put shoulder pressure right in your face. I will sometimes cradle if I have to. Um, I like that style of game. That's my that's my kind of game, you know? So when I saw it, I was like, "Damn, Josh Barnett has like I like the way I like the way he grapples." And he and he was teasing with holding the toes because you, then you wrap your knee and your your the instep of your outside foot around their hip to come around to go for the attack. Like he was awesome, man. Josh Barnett was awesome, but there's also no doubt that weight played a factor. You know, there's just no way around it. So um, credit to Dean for hanging on as long as he did. Credit to Josh Barnett for putting away a guy who hadn't been submitted in 16 years. The biggest lesson for me though is that. You know, listen. If you want to win IBJJF tournaments, you gotta learn Barambolos, and you gotta learn double lapel chokes, and you gotta learn Toriando passes, and and everything else. But if you want to become a more complete grappler, you know, to the best extent possible, get out there and learn from these other styles, man. I really want to do that. I want to learn more wrestling. I want to learn more catches, catch can. I want to learn. I want to learn some sambo, judo less so because it's super painful. But uh, you get the idea. All right. Delicious. And warm. Has War Machine caused irreparable damage to MMA? Irreparable? No. Um, so he says he lives in the UK, you know, where MMA has covered his cage fighting and tabloids and blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, someone asked him this morning if he'd been following the news about War Machine. She was appalled, but unfortunately shared my sympathies with the writer of the piece who felt MMA is a cause of violence in young men. Anecdotal evidence of this incident being damaging, I know, but my point is that she broadly represents a huge group of people in the UK that know only one thing about MMA, that it has young men that violently attack their spouses. My question in two parts, 
How damaging is this to the sport, and what can the big three UFC, Bellator, World Series of Fighting, I don't think World Series of Fighting can do much, or Bellator, to be honest, maybe more with Bellator, do to stem the tide and rehabilitate the image of MMA. Apologies for the long preamble, blah, blah, blah. Um, how damaging? Well, I would not say that it's uh, irreparably damaging. It's certainly not good for right now. Um, this is the way we learn, you know. Everyone's like, I saw someone on this uh, Tony Stewart issue, you know, and he, I know, whether or not it was intentional, we don't know, but he killed this guy on this uh, track. And everyone's like, how could something like this happen? Like, why aren't there procedures in place to keep this from happening? And it's like, there, first of all, there were, but beyond that, like, no one, you know, um, we, we are creatures that solve for problems. Uh, we are creatures that, uh, hold on. We are creatures that solve for, for problems. The problem doesn't exist, we don't solve it. Like, if there's no polio, there's no Jonas Salk, right? This is what we do. And so after the fact, it's unfortunately that we have to learn this way, and I suppose some organizations and people and practices become more proactive and progressive on their own, but MMA is going to learn the hard way on this one. We have a problem. We have a problem as a community. Um, there's a general attitude about women, while not in all places and in all people and in all things, but there's a general sense about women and who they are and what their place is and what we're allowed to do to them. The War Machine and Grispy examples are extreme ones, which I think should be noted, but there is a problem. There is a certain culture of dismissiveness and, and, and beyond that, to, to be quite frank. Um, so I don't think it's irreparable, but I do think this will help serve as a learning lesson, you know. Um, I think some of the learning lessons the UFC has had to face have helped them become uh, better partners with the LGBT community. I don't think anyone would deny that, even in that office. Um, and my own personal failings as a person have helped me become more empathetic and sympathetic and aware of, of people's issues. Um, and that probably works for you, too. This is how we, as, uh, as humans, uh, unfortunately, this is how we improve. We improve through error. And we improve through embarrassment, and we improve through, um, how do I explain this exactly? You know, you could, I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that, but you get the idea. So no, I don't think it's uh, damaging. I think in some sense, it'll be beneficial in the long run, in terms of a sort of awakening our moral sensitivities. Um... And it also just sort of underscores what a current problem we have. If women certainly feel that way about MMA, I actually think MMA is, has nothing to do with that. I think MMA is actually a healthy outlet for young men. Uh, not every young man, but I think combat sports, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, judo, um, and even other athletics too, I think these are healthy outlets for young men. And I think there are some young men who are going to be, if they're not in a cage, they're going to be out, you know, taking a screwdriver to your car stereo in the parking lot of a Buffalo Wild Wings, and it's probably better that they're in that cage and training and finding some productivity and, and going through that life cycle of dealing with their violence. That in of itself won't always work. People in the military try the same thing. But it is, a, it is I think, actually, MMA is a positive force. But, but the problem is when there are certain notions of manhood and certain hyper-masculinity that runs amok, it creates a lot of problems for the other side. MMA in two, excuse me, MMA in 2014, uh, 2013 was widely considered to be one of the best, if not the best year in MMA ever. With that being said, is 24 shaping up to be one of the most disappointing years ever. Um, it's getting there. 
it's getting there. A lot of positives, like any other year. Full calendar year is so big that there's no way to have a lot, not have a lot of positives. I also want to say something about like oversaturation. I'm not going to get into the debate. We've had it a number of times, but I, you know, whether you agree with me or not, it's sort of immaterial. What I don't want you to do, though, on either way, either side, is to get too into the ideology that there is or there isn't. First of all, there is, whether or not you believe it. But, um, but I often see like after that Conor McGregor thing, everyone was like, okay, now I see what oversaturation works. And it's like, well, certainly you can have good events, and on paper, what the UFC is trying to do makes sense. The problem is in the real world, that doesn't actually work. Like, there's injuries, and other events happen, and um, they actually don't have the roster to fill these cards anyway. And so, the, so you look at 177, and you say, my God, this is this is this is the other end of the debate. This is the this is the reality of the of the UFC experience today. You have these wonderful events like the one in Ireland, and you also have these unbelievably, you know, just I mean, falling short on pay-per-view in every way possible is, is what UFC 177 is doing. Um, and you can't separate the two. They are, they are both tied to the same ideology. They're both tied to the same business push. That one exists because of the other. Not one-to-one, -one, but as a general effort. But what I don't want you to do is, after a good event, be like, oh my god, there's no such thing as oversaturation. Or, conversely, after 177 saying, oh my god, the sky is falling. It's not falling. Nor is it oversaturation the best thing in the world. There's a, there's a, it's you have to judge it on the totality of the effort. I think it leans a certain way, but I I often see like this like wailing and gnashing of teeth ahead of and after UFC 177. I'm not saying it's entirely misplaced. You're allowed to feel fan frustration, but I also don't want to see after good events, which are certainly possible. If you have a number of events, not all of them are going to be bad. That oh my God, there's no such thing. Let's have a more measured approach. And UFC learned from 1FC. I watched 1FC, uh, 1FC 16 with Ben Askren. I was surprised with the product. One of the things I really liked was their short promos in between fights explaining positions and submissions on the ground. 1FC seemed to have an understanding that a lot of their audience is new and uneducated about and uneducated about what's going on or when the fight hits the ground. Why does UFC not do this? They used to do this. It was a series called On the Mat with Mark Lehman. But if you notice, what 1FC is trying to do in um, Asia is what UFC was trying to do in circa 2003 and 4, where people knew nothing about arm bars or chokes or knee bars or ankle locks. And also, MMA was a little bit more simplistic back then. It's even more complicated now um, and much more dynamic now. You know, fighters are better now. So they have their work cut out for them, but it's not... That audience is deeply unsophisticated relative to what North American audiences are. And I think at some point UFC said, we can't keep like showing this stuff. There may be a liability to showing it uh, at the end of the day. So that's why. Why does Cub Swanson not get as much push behind him to fight for the title from the media and UFC? The last time he fought Aldo was in WC in June of 2009. That fight was seven seconds. Maybe it was a fluke or not, but he is really entertaining to watch. Putting him in a fight versus Frank Yeager seems to be the most logical matchup, but it disposes of a title contender. Thoughts? Um, not permanently. I think that weight class is relatively thin-ish. Moreover, it's the fight that, from a calendar standpoint, makes the most sense. Um, and as for sort of the push... You know, listen, he is overcoming some bad 
baggage. He was, as you know, from 2009 and some other ones, he lost to Jens Pulver too, you know, like that 10-finger guillotine. I believe that was Cub, right? God, my memory is just a show these days. You guys see my Tito Ortiz interview? I didn't even remember that, like, um, Shlomenko went out. I thought he had tapped. I actually went to that event. Shameful. Uh, yeah, he lost to Jens Pulver in WC31 2007, you know. So I think, um, and the Chad Mendes fight, I think he's overcoming a lot of things. He got submitted by Ricardo Lamas, but he's had a nice run of recent, and that takes time. It takes time to rehabilitate the idea that you're a good fighter but a limited one, a good fighter but vulnerable to the best. It takes time to sort of work through that, and he has an interesting story. I actually think he's really fun to talk to. Seems like a hell of a guy, but um, you don't simply overcome those issues automatically, you know. But I don't think there's any kind of conspiracy to keep him from the media. I don't, or it's, you know, to not give him the credit he deserves. You're judged on the body of your work, you know. And if you run, if you're on a great streak, that's certainly fine. Um, Matt Brown's been celebrated in that way, but um, you have a lot of baggage to overcome too. Jones out. Your thought on this terrible news? Do you know any timelines for Gustafson or Jones? How do you think? You no, know, if Cormier will opt for surgery now. Um. Cormier is not going to do the surgery, which I think is good, because that permanently alters the construction and architecture of your body. But he has more time to rehabilitate. Um, do I think Gustafson or Cormier should get the shot? Cormier. How large a part of this Dubrawl and media bus surrounding it led to Cormier holding the spot? All of it. All of it. Every bit of that has to do with why he's getting the shot. If it hadn't happened, I don't know. Things might be different. What do you think are the most overused words or phrases in MMA today? It is what it is. Don't leave it in the hands of the judges. I'll fight whoever the UFC puts in front of me. I had the best camp of my life. I'll have to talk to my coaches and team to see what's next. I'm only focusing on ex-opponent. Ex-opponent is the toughest of my career. Um, yeah, those are good ones. Duxison versus Rumble. Since there will be a significant amount of time now without Gustafson fighting, does this fight make sense, or is it just a waste of a contender? That will depend entirely on the calendar and what happens in that first fight. If the first fight is close and controversial, it might make sense. If it's a blowout, no. I've noticed a pattern of UFC announcing good news on ESPN and bad news on Fox. That's funny. That's true, too. Luke, it seems that fight cancellations and PED stories are broken on Fox and big fight announcements are on ESPN. Is UFC concerned that ESPN would ask the tough questions on stories that paint the promotion in a negative light? Also, what are your thoughts on some media outlets being so closely tied to a promotion or sports league? Yeah, I did go with this a little bit last week. Um... I mean, I think all leagues have bad relationships with their media partners. Maybe UFC is a little more cozy with Fox. I don't know, but um, but you know, not like ESPN is hard hitting on NFLs. It could be sometimes, uh, although they do a lot more programming. But to to your point, um, yeah, dude. But here's the other part. Like, do you think ESPN wants their stories about fights being canceled? I mean, I think they've broken a couple of cancellation stories on there. But do you think they want that? No, man. They want the big news. They want the huge, fun news. That's what ESPN wants. They don't want the stories. Moreover, it is easier to bury news if you're going to do it on a lower-rated format. 
Um, it makes a lot of strategic sense. The question, though, is what is that? What does that, as I asked last week, what does that portend for future loyalties? Is the UFC doing this to butter them up so when their deal ends, they can move over to ESPN? I don't think that's the craziest theory in the world. You can Dana White will be like, oh, we want to be with them forever, and maybe they do, maybe they will, but I, I think they're keeping their options open. Honestly, would McGregor versus Poirier or Alvarez versus Cerrone as a headliner on a still very decent card do more buys than Mighty Mouse versus Carriasso? Um, I don't think that's the issue. Would I want to see McGregor versus Poirier in five rounds over Demetrius versus Carriasso? Yes, I would. And unfortunately, does taking away Demetrius and Carriasso from 177 to make that dreadful card even worse? It actually does. You know, I do like seeing Mighty Mouse fight. I think he's going to just absolutely steamroll Carriasso, but I like seeing him work his trade. Um, God, that is a bad card. <laughs> Woo! Uh, but, you know, the UFC has certain views about what a pay-per-view card should look like. They want to have, to the extent possible, headlined by either mega, mega stars, and if not that, or overlapping. They want title fights on there. They lost a title fight now on 177. They had two on one, uh, 178. They had two on 177. It makes sense to distribute that given what their preferences are. Um, but I think there's a misconception. Like I was having a debate on Twitter with somebody and they were saying to me like, how many pay-per-view buys would Cerrone versus Alvarez add? And my answer to that is not many at all. Like, And the reality is I don't think folks understand. There's not many people, to use the proverbial move the needle, who can in the pay-per-view space. Benson Henderson, I think there's enough evidence to suggest he can move the needle on free TV. Can't really do that on pay-per-view. He's not very well. Right? And there could be all kinds of reasons for that, and we can speculate about what that means, but that's sort of, again, we can't be too definitive about it. That's basically what the numbers tell us. In the same sense, I'm sorry, guys, Cowboy Cerrone is an incredible talent, and, uh, I mean, he is the people's champion. If, if, if not him, then who? But at the same time, he's not a pay-per-view star. He has no experience and no evidence to suggest he can move the needle on pay-per-view. None. Zero. Eddie Alvarez, even less. So that fight is a, like, in fact, the reason why I like that fight is not because it's a, it's a way, like, it's not the UFC being like, how can we get more pay-per-view buys on this, on this card if they manage to actually add it to 178. The reason why I like that fight is, for, is because it doesn't do that hardly at all. In fact, what it does is it delights both the expectant viewer, the insider, like you watching this chat, and the outsider. Because you, the insider, you know, damn, Cerrone versus Alvarez, that's a great fight. These are two elite lightweights. Oh, my God, Eddie Alvarez coming over from Bellator in and of itself, that's exciting. Hell, yeah, I want to see that fight. And chances are, it's hard to see how those two would have a boring fight. So the non-expectant viewer gets to go, okay, I don't know who this Cerrone and Alvarez character are. Maybe I've seen the Cerrone guy before. I don't know who this Alvarez guy is, but uh, I'll give it a shot. The rest of the card is good. Let's watch. And then these two put on a hell of a fight. Right? That's what the value is. In fact, it's the UFC serving the customer without a one-to-one um, return on their investment in terms of pay-per-view buys. It's them hooking up the customer. That's why I like that fight. I like the fight on its own terms, yes, of course. But I also like the fight because it's got nothing to do with actually adding a significant chunk of pay-per-view buys. Some fans will be like, oh, Don Cerrone, Eddie Alvarez, I'll purchase that. But that's a super insider thing to do. A super insider thing to do. That's not what's really going to move, especially on a card that originally 
headline Jones, D.C., or Jones Gustafson, now Jones, D.C. You get the idea. Or now, not Jones, D.C. You know what I mean. Um, but that's, that's the beauty of that fight. It's got nothing to do with pay-per-view buys. Is that they know it won't really move the needle, but it greatly, greatly enhances the customer experience and the return to them and giving them what they want without them saying, without them being like, well, what does it do for us? That's why I like that fight so much. That's what pay-per-views are supposed to be. Give me stars at the top that'll move the needle for you and give me guys on the rest of the car that do it for me. Uh, Metamoras. If I get appointed Metamorphs 5 matchmaker, I'm not asking for a full card, but what would be your ideal choices for matches? Distinguish which would be gi and no gi. I'll give you one gi, one no gi. How about that? I don't want to spend too much time doing this. I would say um, you guys are going to laugh at me, but after last week, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, no gi. I wouldn't mind seeing Josh Barnett, Nogueira. I think that might be kind of fun. Because you guys remember their, their fight in Pride. It was, it was a show. Uh, and in the gi... I would like to see twenty minutes. This is gonna sound like a cop out, but because I've never seen him compete for that long, only these short these short bursts. I'd like to see um, I'd like to see Bushesha versus Adolfo twenty minutes sub only. I think that'd be kind of cool. That's Marcus Almeida versus Adolfo Vieira, basically one and two in the world. Aldo and McGregor. Could McGregor be what Aldo needs in terms of publicity? Yes. Yes, he could in the entire division. He's If he can keep winning, man, if he beats Poirier, look out, man. He isn't just going to raise his profile. He isn't just going to raise the profile of who he fights. He's going to lift that entire division. Now, it's contingent upon him winning. If he doesn't win, well, forget it. But if he can win, if not all the time consistently enough, He's going to lift that entire division. This is what I'm talking about. It should be easy. It should be easy. Yes, the media can, you know, do the special events with him, and they can, UFC can put him at pressers, and they can book him in the big fight cards, and all. that's the things you need to do to build a star. There, there are things you can do, and there is such thing as malpractice there. And, and I do think some guys could benefit more from more attention, but the biggest ones, the best ones, they do it effortlessly. All you need to do is facilitate them. So when I hear questions about why isn't this guy a star, or why is it because it doesn't come natural to them, and people don't naturally respond to them, that may change over time. They might find a new tactic. Chael Sonnen is a perfect example. But as it stands right now, what they're delivering does not resonate with the fan base. It's very simple. UFC 178. What do you think the pay-per-view buys will be for UFC 178? Still a great card now with a bad main event. Half of what it was going to do before, if not more, if not less. <clears throat> On a scale of 1 to 10, how badly does this hurt UFC 178's pay-per-view numbers? Very badly. I remember the MMA beat... Where'd you, where'd you put that? Oh, yeah. Last week you had an idea this would be in the high water mark for the year and could possibly flirt with a million. Well, I had it close to uh, 700,000. This, I mean, you're losing, you're losing a lot. Again, Parry and McGregor is a huge fight for you and I. Um, the return of Do Dominic Cruz can't wait. Yoel Romero, sign me up, and on and on and on and on and on. But in terms of the 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 truly visible thing, the kind of force that reaches into my family, my friends who like Arsenal my wife, 
that kind of thing is now completely absent from it. Completely absent. So it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. WWE ads all over MMA fighting. Luke, I know this MMA fighting homepage was a billboard for WWE programming. The entire network was, not just us. MMA fighting has no relationship with WWE, I can assure you. Ad sales team did that. It was for the entire network, not just the MMA network, the network. Uh, true or false? John Jones, DC actually happened. I quit my job if they had a relationship with WWE. I'll just put it that way, flat out. John Jones versus DC actually happens on January 3rd. True. John Jones makes his makes way more money outside the cage than in it. So pulling out of a fight is much more viable option to him than other fighters, and this sort of thing will be commonplace among bigger stars. Um, I, I don't know if that's true, but I do think he has accumulated wealth. The postponement increases DC's chancing of winning the fight. True. The UFC should bite the bullet and make Gus DC fight in October or November. No. False. Anthony Johnson would lose both to DC and Gustafson. I think so, but I don't know about Gustafson. DC would manhandle Gustafson. True. Um, the Sirius XM Fight Club, which is the radio show that I'm on. Luke, is there any way Sirius XM Fight Club shows... Uh, is there any way to, to listen to them without actually subscribing to Sirius XM? I'm sure Sirius XM always a great product, but wouldn't be able to use them and would only be interested in your radio shows over there. We do tweet large samples of the show once it's over, so I recommend you following them on Twitter. But to get the full show... Um, you do have to subscribe. There are plans that let you do internet only, um, internet and then radio device. So there are, you know, maybe just on your phone as well. I'm not sure how the tiered system works, but I know there are some far less expensive options than other ones. So look into them. If that doesn't work for you, we still tweet long segments. Um, but the full show, you have to be a subscriber. So subscribe. What's your take on UFC's recent time frames for building up fights? Are they taking place too early? Nope, they are not. They have a lot of fights in between that they don't have a lot of opportunity to promote, like the one this weekend. They don't need to do a lot of promoting for it because of the way in which their dynamics work on Fox Sports 1, where they're a key driver for viewers without having to do a whole lot other than just alert their attentive audience. Um, and they're going to do the numbers they're going to do. It's a Saturday night. They'll probably do okay. Uh, interestingly enough, there was an article in a... God, I don't have the article, but it was in a, it was in a, a, a main publication where they asked Dana White about ticket sales. The venue they're in, the way, here's what Dana White explained, basically. I don't want to, I don't want to get it wrong, so if anyone finds the article, by all means share it and I'll tweet it out, but the basic idea was that, you know, UFC as a corporation, all the smart people there who make decisions, they were against going to Bangor, not a huge market, why would you go there? Dana White's a big believer in Bangor, Maine, he vacations there, um, he likes, he likes Maine, and so they thought, you know, listen, let's try it, let's just try a card there and see how it goes, and as you know, Typically speaking, when the UFC goes to a market for the first time, it has a very enthusiastic response. Most notably and most recently, you could mention uh, San Antonio, you could mention Baltimore. These, these mid-markets they haven't been able to go to, they now have a product designed for them. Um, they've had some good responses, at least at the live gate. Now, not in totality, but you know what I'm talking about. Baltimore, oh, excuse me, um, Baltimore was a big success for them um, uh, at the live gate. Anyway, um, they thought... Hey, we'll cash in on that. Turns out that the venue has less than less than 7,000 seats, and as of the time of that writing, I think even right now, it's not sold out. And that was a bit surprising to them. So it looks like they won't ever go back to Maine, that's what he actually said. Um, he didn't say definitively they won't go back to Maine, but it doesn't look good for the prospects of returning there. But I think for our ratings on a Saturday night, they'll probably do just fine. Not a lot of good fights on the card, but um, 
In terms of the other fights, actually getting out in front is exactly what they need to do. When they had so many before, before they sort of really figured out how to work this calendar space, they were always sort of playing catch-up. And now with these promotional tours, they're getting out in front. That they had the brawl happen in the way that it did was simply a godsend for them. It enabled them to have an event to promote another event. And they could be a signpost for everything. It got John Jones on Jimmy Kimmel. It got on ESPN. It got on Fox Sports 1. It got on all these places that gave it a, a, a massive audience that otherwise ordinarily wouldn't. And you can make the claim, well, how can they sustain that for six weeks? Sometimes they won't be able to. I think that's going to be a downside. But for bigger fights like that, getting the word out early is much better than trying to play catch-up late. And so it's not that it doesn't come without risk. It's not that it doesn't come without challenges. It's that, in totality, that's a better way to go about promoting a fight than simply saying, we got four weeks, let's just, let's just blitz this thing the best we can. Or even worse, what we've seen sometimes, we've got two weeks, we've got one week, and you don't even bother to hear anything. That 178 card, as it was the day of that brawl, is one of the best cards in a long time. If they didn't start promoting it that early, that would be... Gustafson's future. Now that Gus has to wait longer for a title shot, do you think it's better for him to take another fight? Let's see. Again, without getting too, too complicated, there can be a right answer to that, and it's entirely contingent upon what happens in the first Jones-DC fight, his calendar, and who's available. That's the only way to give you a proper answer. If the Jones-DC fight is an effing blowout or just a thorough beating, we'll see what happens. If it's super controversial, then... Yes, he, uh, he would be foolish not to take another fight. All those things are contingent. In addition to, if they want to have a fight with Johnson, is Johnson injured? Does he have another fight? All those things matter. The last two weeks or so have given us the brawl, Grisby and War Machine, Hot Mike's, Dog the Bounty Hunter, another flyweight title fight, headlining a pay-per-view, a high-profile injury, refunds, Warhammer and a Speedo, and Bellator looking to bring women's MMA back into their fold before getting in their house in order. Do casual fans even exist in MMA? <laughs> I'll leave that one to you, the readers, and the viewers. True or false? UFC will host less shows next year. False. But they may not hold much more, and I hope they dial back a little bit on pay-per-view. Jones's injury will lead to dust, excuse me, to DC Gus Rumble fighting each other. False. UFC 178 won't make 350k buys without Jones DC. Wow. I'll say true. More than 50% of the UFC roster is actually on PEDs. I have no idea. Poirier beats McGregor. I don't know. I truly just don't know yet. Someone says no comment about 50% of the UFC roster. Look, 90% could be on. I just don't know, man. You talk to guys behind the scenes about who's on PEDs, and some guys are like, oh, it's, you know, they just throw out these massive numbers. I think that kind of conjecture is just, is just aside from being unhelpful, it's just stupid. I think that guys have a bias about the effect of what it has on one person's career and what it all may mean. But are guys going into gyms, training, and seeing literally half the fighters inject, half the fighters try something? Uh, I just I just have a hard time believing that, to be honest. Uh, another true-false. Guts ends up fighting Rumble. I oh, know I heard this one already. Bellator does another pay-per-view this year that gets more buys than UFC's worst pay-per-view. If they get Gina. They may have already done one, by the way. UFC 177 does less than 100K buys. It, it might, man. It might. Seriously, it might. 
Cyborg goes to Bellator. Only if Gina goes. Bochek's rant. Did you can't? Did you catch uh, Bochek's rant on MMA Hour yesterday? I did. His claim of 90% of fighters being on PEDs was crazy, but him bashing women's MMA was more so, saying they should be in a separate league and they are only there for sex appeal. was surprising considering how level-headed smart Bochek appeared to be. Do you think this consensus is shared by most UFC fighters? I don't know. I haven't talked to most UFC fighters about whether or not they feel like women should be their peers, but... Um, um, leaving aside the PED claim... Um, I thought that most of the, what he said about women's MMA was was um, just totally unfounded and crazy. However, his claim that sex appeal dramatically helps their career as a means of getting to the UFC, um, I don't think is wrong. Um, and he's looking at it as a way of, I think he was trying to say they're taking... They're they're ruining the way he said it was. They're ruining basically my experience as a fan because they're a low level talent, which he's also somewhat not wrong about. Um, but then they're also taking food off my plate as a competitor. There's less roster space for me. Um, I, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's sort of what it sounded like. But um, other women fighters say that Mark Bocek is not alone in that regard. That doesn't make it a good thing. I'm not here to endorse that. Like. It, oh, women can get to the UFC easier because of sex appeal. I'm not here to simply say that that is, or even to, that's not just UFC, like excelling in their career in any promotion because of sex appeal. Um, but it's sort of hard to deny, right? People try to make claims about, like, well, look at Luke Rockhold or George St. Pierre. Certainly it benefits their career, but it doesn't seem to have the same kind of, it doesn't seem to be the same kind of buoy. You know, George, George St. Pierre is also the total package. He's like a gentleman. He never gets in trouble, you know, not a big drinker, that kind of thing. And so he's he's good for a corporation to put their their money behind. Um, and Luke Rockle doesn't have any major sponsorship that I know of, you know. So, um, or, you know, hasn't hasn't hosted or, or been a coach on Ultimate Fighter or anything like that. So, you know, for all the benefits that it confers for the men, it seems to be much, much more exaggerated on the women's side, whether or not you think that's a good thing. I didn't think he was necessarily wrong about that. Um, I remember a post where the UFC's plan for 2014 was to take over the world in so many words. When UFC officials look back on 2014, will there be tears? I don't think there will be tears. There's been a lot of successes this year. But... I think they'll have to look at their business plan and make some and make some adjustments, like anybody else. There are some of these markets that are more ready to be massaged, and there are some that are super far away. Um, and there are costs to doing all that kind of overseas work at home. And the question is, how much do you want to burn one to build the other? Danny Castillo versus Tony Ferguson will serve as the UFC 177 co-main event. Wow. Uh, the Jones versus Cormier hot mic situation. The real John Jones came through in that hot mic exchange, and I loved it. He should really be that a-hole full-time. Cormier seemed like way too whiny, the little brother annoyed as Brig Brothers pestering. Any thoughts on the exchange? And second, how was that released? I saw around the same time a poll on ESPN that showed the majority of the country believed the brawl was staged. Did the UFC and or ESPN release that video in response to the skepticism? Really curious about how it got in front of our eyeballs. How it got out, I don't know. But let me tell you something. Um, I, don't, I can't get too inside baseball here. 
Um, God, what can I say about this? Um, okay. First of all, it was from an ESPN um, show right before they aired, right? But it was taken down by UFC, which means it came from a UFC satellite feed. Now, they can they took them down pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, there's a question about who leaked it. I, I, I hope that it's... I don't know who leaked it. I hope the UFC leaked it, and I hope they sort of played the role of taking it down. If you knew... The, if you were the UFC and you had that clip, would you not want to leak it too? Like, I'm not even condemning them for it. I'm applauding them for it. If, in fact, they're the ones that did it. I'm applauding them for it. Because it's genius. It's genius. You'd be, you'd be crazy not to release stuff like that. That is the stuff of dreams, man. Because the majority of the country, I feel like... This is the problem with, like, loosely associating MMA and pro wrestling all the time. It drives me crazy. I can't stand it, but whatever. Um, it is what it is. I can't get rid of it, you know? Uh... And I think a lot of fans have a dismissive attitude about the way in which UFC promotes their product, rightfully so. I think a little bit to the same extent in boxing, but not nearly as much. Um, I don't think it was in result of a of a of a poll that showed the you know, majority of Americans because they can extend that skepticism from the brawl to the hot mic situation. It doesn't really change that. Moreover, I think what most skeptics might say is, I don't know if it's real or it's not, but it's damn entertaining, which was sort of the attitude that my friend took, the one who texted me about it. As for this whole thing about the real John Jones, actually, and then you're gonna call it, find this crazy. I thought I think both guys come off just fine and terribly at the same time. You know, like when you people are like, oh, John Jones threatened death. Have you not been in public before? Have you not like heard two guys squabble in a car accident or in a bar or at the post office? And when one guy loses his cool, he says insane things. I've said stuff like that in fights before. I don't actually. <laughs> I hope I didn't mean it, and I certainly didn't follow through with it, but you say insane things when you lose your cool. And Cormier forces John Jones to lose his cool. Moreover, everyone's like, oh, John Jones is so fake. Maybe he is fake, you know? Who goes to where? You think I'm the same person in the office dealing with my coworkers that I am at home? I'm the same person? You're the same person? Maybe you are. You're probably not. You're probably very, very different. And who cares? Why do you care? Who? The real John Jones. I don't know who he is. And you know what? You don't know who he is either. I don't really want to know. I don't care. To, it doesn't affect me in any way. I don't have to sort of pour over the situation into the sort of as a detective work, a private event. Who's the real John Jones? I'm going to get to the bottom of this mystery, Scoobs. Well, who, what do you care? What do you care? Just watch the stupid video and be entertained. You're never going to figure it out. You don't know the guy. Same with Cormier. Cormier certainly gives off an air of authenticity, but you don't know. Anyway. Uh, Weidman pay-per-view star. Regarding the pay-per-view numbers for 175, Weidman versus Machida around 500k-ish. You didn't seem particularly blown away. It was only Weidman's second defense, and he is a vanilla wrestle boxer. So the fact that he got these numbers is a huge success, in my opinion. I think it will be Zupa's next pay-per-view star due to him hitting around the 500k mark with the potential of a bit more, depending on the right circumstances. What are your thoughts? I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was pretty good. I just didn't think it was... Um, um, it didn't blow my doors off. You know, I think it was 450 to 5, so it was still less than 5, um, which is a good number. You know, I'm not, it's, a, it's a good number. It's a, I don't want to qualify too much. It's not an amazing number. It's not a great number, but it's a very, very good number. I think that um, we need to see more in how he does. Certainly, the unique circumstances of how he got to that fight 
beating Anderson Silva twice were, you know, um, it's just a completely non-transferable experience to other pay-per-view headliners, you know. And so that changed things for him. I think his fighting style is exciting. Um, so, you know, we'll see what he does in the future. Let's, let's sort of see how he does against, you know, also Machida is a, a former champion and, and, and was a pay-per-view headliner in the MMA boom. Let's see what it, what he does if he ever fights, you know, Jacques Array or Luke Rockhold or somebody like Musashi. Let's see what happens when those numbers go like that. But um, so far, so good is what I'd say for Chris Weidman. Uh, let's see. I'm not even answering this dumbass question. Um, It drives me crazy how the same people who said that TJ was going to have his organs eaten by Barrow are the same people who now say Barrow is overrated and doesn't deserve to be in the same room as Dillashaw. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, what you find in the fan the fan experience pre and post fight is that everyone is prone to hyperbole, and sometimes that hyperbole, you know, um, before a fight, the if there's an overwhelming favorite, there's simply no way they can lose. This sort of miracle of God and and touched by Jesus Himself, and then the fight happens in the way that it does, and then the roles reverse. Um, and so pre and post fight, you have this really exaggerated reactions to things. But we're getting again closer to the fight time. You're going to again see more and more exaggerated reactions. Also, some fans are donks; they simply can't find the uh, space for measured reaction. Um, but th they're not really worth listening to. I think it's going to be a close fight this time, much closer than the last time. Even no matter who you think is going to win, um, you know I don't know there will be a stoppage this time. I mean maybe there will be. Both guys are pretty capable of stoppages, but uh, you know if people have outsized reactions, just stop listening to them. More UFC fighters and metamorists. Do you think we'll be seeing more and more UFC fighters and metamorists? I'm talking primarily about wrestlers and mixed martial artists who have trained BJJ and submission wrestling, but never competed in Mundials or ADCC. Well, Barnett's different because he did compete at ADCC although a, a while ago, um, and his game has changed dramatically since then. Um, I don't mind seeing more UFC fighters with Morris. I think that it is good for their exposure, but there are a couple of problems with it. One, some of them are just not very good, and people keep being like, oh, Sonnen lasted 13 minutes against Galvao. Um, I respect Sonnen for getting in there. He did good at nullifying Galvao's guard. He didn't shove it up where he was like just sort of like not even not even getting close to Cyborg's guard. But at the same time, folks just don't understand. If you try to submit somebody who has no desire to be submitted and isn't trying to pass or threaten, it's very, very difficult. Just playing defense, especially with no gi, is, is, it's hard to get around. It's hard to get around. Really, 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 really hard to get around. With the gi, less so. Because even if they're doing that whole bit where... Sonnen wisely was putting his palm in, in Galvao's chin. You still have things where you can control the gi and control their posture, and then you can just go for a cross choke, you know. Um, and they have to address that, right? So in other words, you don't have to control their posture. You don't have to have the head and the arm together and then foot and the hip and whipping around for an arm bar or whatever. You can just go right to the gi. It changes things dramatically. You can then use the gi to open their elbows, to control their posture. There's lots of things you can do that the gi enables. Um, there's more submissions when, when you're using the gi because you have arm bars and stuff, but also the gi. Um, but in no gi, if someone doesn't want to get submitted, it's hard to submit them, man. It's very, 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 very hard to submit them. And there was a weight disparity. 
you know. Galvao did it, uh, which tells you how good Galvao is, but um, all I'm pointing out is that it gives people a weird... Pr- if, if they've never they've never done submission wrestling before, it gives them a weird perspective about talent levels. So I don't like that. But in the case of, like, Barnett, it worked out really well because Barnett is a very credited, credible talent. A... a, a, a you know, probably one of the best catch wrestlers in MMA, if not in all of catch wrestling. I don't know too much about catch wrestling to make a claim that way, but certainly very good. And of course, you know, he's done judo in the past, and of course has a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu. This is this is a credible grappler, man. And he had a bit of a weight advantage, like not much, but enough. Um, that made for interesting action. In that case, as long as it's done in a clever way, I'm okay with it. Um, I, but I don't want to see people getting the wrong impression about what submission wrestling looks like and what the talent levels are because you get guys who are badly outmatched and their only hope is just to defend. And just defending, A, is not very exciting, and B, um, it just gives you a warped perspective about what's happening. If I give, if I taught you six months of defense and get, put you against a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, just, just defense, we're just going to we're gonna put this guy's hips on the ground, we're gonna put his head and we're gonna lay him flat on the ground. We're not gonna pass. We're not gonna keep. We're gonna keep our elbows in. I bet you you could go 20 minutes without getting submitted. I bet you. I bet you. Because it's easier to defend than it is to defend and attack. Uh, with the Bellator embracing fights like Melvin Manoff and Doug Marshall having Bobby Lashley on the main card, let's be honest, becoming more gimmicky. How will it affect your future coverage of Bellator? It'll affect it the way in which. Um, it always has. I don't think Manhoof versus Marshall is the worst fight. I actually think it's pretty competitive, to be honest. Manhoof is a much more credible kickboxer than Marshall, but he has taken a ton of damage. His career, his ability to absorb it, has been badly compromised. And Doug Marshall, if nothing else, can crack, first of all. Uh, number one, number two, it's a fun fight. There's nothing really to dismiss about it. It's not high level, but it's fun. Uh, Bobby Lashley being on the card is a, is a joke. I mean, you can just sort of, you know, say that for what it is. But, um... It'll be commensurate with what they put out. It's not like what they put out before was like above reproach. I mean, there's a lot of what they put out before that was garbage. A lot of it, though, I thought was deeply underrated. And by the way, the news that Frodo Hasbalaev isn't coming back is uh, is anyone else as saddened by that as me? A guy at 145 didn't speak a lick of English. Every time he fought, had a chip on his shoulder and would put it on you, constantly going from minute one to minute five, and then ten to you know the whole way. Um, six to ten, and ten and eleven to fifteen. I, I, I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that he can't get over here for whatever the reason is, man. I thought that was, that was that, that, that season eight featherweight tournament, or maybe it was season nine. I can't remember anymore. But that featherweight tournament with him and and Mike Richmond and Marlon Sandro and uh, Guerrero. I mean, I thought that was like one of the best tournaments Bellator ever did. And the winner of it can't cap- capitalize on it as a consequence. Kills me. I bought tickets to UFC's 176 and 178. Is it safe to say I'm cursed? You might be. My question to you is, do I keep my $150 tickets and accept a refund or use the change to improve my levels of intoxication when I go out to the clubs that night? Um, you can almost spend 150 at a club. I would go to the, I would go to the fights. TJ Grant's health. Simple question for you, Luke. Should TJ Grant retire? Not yet, as I wrote about it today from Ariel Hawani's interview in the MMA Hour. If he keeps going, however, he probably should. UFC Fight Night 47, why? The Lord giveth and taketh away, but why does he never take away cards like Bader versus OSP? I cannot comprehend why Zufa keeps putting such talented fighters like Sarah McMahon and Zach Makovsky on prelim cards. Any idea yourself? 
Um, let me look at that card before I agree with you. I don't even know who's on the fight Man, it used to be when I was like years ago doing this, I could tell you everybody who was on a fight card. I can barely keep up now, man. Although I am making a pledge to watch more um, tape to do my predictions posts. Didn't help a World Series of Fighting, but it has helped in the past. So Bader versus St. Pru, Maynard versus Pearson, that's a good fight. Boch Tavares, Tavares is going to win that. Bazinski and Juban. Sean Jordan, Jack May, Tiago Tavares, Robbie Peralta. Yeah, that's kind of nubs. Um, and you got Formiga versus Makovsky, McMahon, and Murphy. That's a good question. Um, let's see. So Sean Jordan's probably on the main card because he's a heavyweight. Tiago Tavares, Robbie Peralta because it's going to be action-oriented. Seth Bazinski is a welterweight. I don't know why. So you could move that one down. Boch Tavares. Boch has been in. And then, all right, so you could take away you could, you could, you could take away Bazinski, and you could potentially take away Tiago Tavares. Um, but you caught, probably couldn't make space for both. So it had to be Formiga, Mikovsky, or McMahon, Murphy. And in that case, I would move up. See, but I would move up Formiga, Mikovsky, because Mikovsky is going to potentially headline, I think, if he can be able to beat Formiga. He's the guy who might headline Demetrius Johnson next. For him to be on Fox Sports 2, doesn't make a case. So I, I won't argue that they can't make some adjustments, particularly in the case of Mikovsky. Him being on Fox Sports 2 makes very little sense to me. That said, um, the other fights on there, you can at least argue... Although Tavares Peralta is it's borderline. Let's go to Twitter real fast. Um, let's see. How many buys do you think M4 did? 20,000, 30,000, something like that? Um, does UFC 177 rival UFC 174 as the best card of the year? <laughs> Yes, yes it does. It certainly does. Uh, someone says, Josh Barnett told me personally on Twitter that Scarfo was almost entirely a choke, but some crank in there as well. Yep, that's my take. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. I believe Cruz injury leading to Burrell Favor 2 was on ESPN. Yep, so there's some stuff that give them bad. Um, let's see. Yeah. I'm just about as hardcore of a fan as it gets, and I will almost certainly skip 177. That will be the first pay-per-view ever. I always say it. If you love it, watch it. If you don't, vote with your dollars. Either, either way, vote with your dollars, but don't do something you don't want to do just because you feel like you're supposed to. Either way. Well, I'm going to skip it because even though I want to watch it, I just, you know, whatever. If you think you need to send a message with your dollars, send a message with your dollars, one way or the other. True or false, the off-air recording of Jones in D.C. was set up. False. Absolutely false. I've done a number of TV shows before. As you know, I was on one for a while. Um, there's lots of downtime for those kinds of interviews like that. They have to set them up well in advance so that by the time you go live everything is tested. Producers can hear you, they can hear each other, you can hear everything you're supposed to hear. In this case, each other. Um, so no. Someone asked me a beer question earlier I wanted to answer real quickly. Because I had some good beers over the weekend. Uh, favorite and least favorite style of beer. 
Favorite would be um, a blonde ale, and least favorite would be IPAs. Not that I don't like IPAs, but dude, you are have to be blind and or just have no sense of taste. What American craft brewers are doing with IPA is is moronic. They are literally just putting as much as they can in there. There, there was a there was one called Palate Wrecker, which is basically I mean talk about truth in advertising. Disgusting. A little bit of hops is great. Some bold hops is even good. But this insane amount, you, you, all these beer companies come out locally, and their first line is, of course, an IPA because it appeals to the moron 25-year-old who's got his first corporate job, a couple of bucks in his back pocket, and hasn't decided he likes to taste pleasant things yet. So he orders the IPA. I like his IPA because it's bold, and they can stuff a S-load of alcohol into it because the hops will just eat it up in the fermentation process. You're a moron. Please stop. Please, you can support, you know, moderately hopped beers. But this hop craze, where they cram as much hops into it as possible, is the worst thing ever. Please try. And oh, look at my new beer. Try Sarah hops. Oh, please go out of business. Um, these are repeat questions. Vanderlei Silva, the NAC. Vanderlei Silva recently said that he doesn't expect to be punished by the NAC since he didn't have a license at the time. I think if he kept this to himself that he may have actually got off with that punishment. Do you think the NAC will go after him now, though? Depends on how he approaches, but I don't think he's wrong. Because he doesn't have a license, I actually think that because he's applying for one, he'll do the Vitor Belfort approach, which is if he has a lawyer there and he's smart. Now, if he doesn't, whatever. They might just cook him, but... Um, if he goes in there and says, hey, let's put a number of conditions on me getting this license, you may find out that things go nicely for him uh, or, or much more than you had thought. In other words, they might basically they'll allow him to compete under a certain set of, you know, maybe difficult terms, but ones that are not insurmountable. Um, that, that space there where you don't have the license and you're applying and you come to the commission hat in hand but willing to uh, meet a certain list of demands, that can be beneficial to you. Yeah, how surprised were you that Barnett dominated Lister and was able to submit him? I know previously you were not interested in that fight at all. It, some of it went the way I thought it would, where Lister just does the whole high-wire submission defense act. Oh, look at me, I can't get submitted, look at me, and he doesn't really do any meaningful offense. So there was a lot of that I was just like, ugh. But when he couldn't recover guard after a long time and was getting cradled and dominated, I was like kind of surprised. And then when Barnett tried that scarf hold, I was just blown away. I was totally blown away. So far exceeded my expectations. And by the way, how great was Kenny... Uh, Keenan versus uh, Vinny, best fight of the night, or match of the night, whatever you want to call it. And then I thought that I, I thought that Tonin versus Dale was going to be better than it is. My major takeaway from that is, first of all, Gary Tonin is getting better, only 22. But I, I really wonder about whether Dale can be better than he is if he stays in Australia. And I know it's a difficult thing to say, and maybe I'm wrong. I know he gets around and trains at various camps here, but consistently, you know, if you're not at these top camps, I really wonder what's possible for him. Last one. Uh, SB Nation, why are there three different MMA outlets at SB Nation? Because they service three different kinds of MMA fans. And they all have different kinds of attitudes about how to run a site. They give you a different fan experience. MMA Fighting is the flagship one, which came late from the AOL purchase. The original was Bloody Elbow. Bloody Elbow formed a nice relationship with MMA Mania. But they service two different kinds of MMA fans. And then the third one as the news leader. And together it works to really give you a comprehensive kind of suite of coverage uh, as an MMA fan that you would want. You may not like those other ones, but trust me, they're all big sites. They all service a different kind of person and different kind of fan experience. And they're all really good. And it also enables us to share a lot of content together, right? So when Esther Lynn makes videos, it works across the whole entire network, uh, or at least the mini network. 
Um, maybe one more real fast. Real fast. I'll get to some of these later. I'll write up some responses, I promise. Uh, let's see. All right, I'll, I'll do a vote next week on the MMA chat logo, see what people think about it. Um, one more quick one, quick one. Anyone from Twitter? I need a quick one. I think DC was prepping the media for a loss when phrases like short notice and my injured knee. Yeah, of course. He's leading the media because he's a smart guy. When he said, you know, I had an injury and I, I managed to find a way to keep competing. I wish Jones would have done the same. It's a brilliant way to take a cheap shot. It means, you know, listen, Jones' injury problem is probably far worse than what Cormier was going through. Otherwise, he probably would have decided to keep competing. And it's just a way of put doubt in the minds of, of MMA fans and, and, you know, stick a finger in the eye of... Um, of, of, of John Jones, but that, that it's actually a, a statement of fact or validity or worth hearing is entirely irrelevant. Um, all right. Someone says Saison's or where it's at. I like those two. I don't like Lambics either. All right. Reminder. It, about an, it takes about an hour and a half to get it up. Come back to this post. I'll have the SoundCloud embed. You can download the embed from there, the, the raw MP3. Um, you can follow me on SoundCloud. You now have an RSS feed. You can follow me on Twitter, which will get everything out of two. I'll put everything on Twitter, at SBNLukeThomas. You may email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com. Love it. Um, so remember, we, by next week, knock on wood, fingers crossed, we should be on iTunes. I can't guarantee it, but I can come pretty close to guaranteeing it. And I appreciate everyone's patience. I appreciate you watching. Get that RSS feed. Get the raw embed and share it when you do. Until next time, thank you. Stay frosty.